This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. In June of 1944, after D-Day, the Allies dispatched armored forces to Europe to join the fight. The American Army's 2nd and 3rd Armored Divisions were designated Heavy Armored Divisions and were equipped with the M4 Sherman tank. The GIs hoped the Sherman was the finest tank on Earth, but in fact, the American tank was woefully inadequate when faced with the powerful gun and heavy armor of the German Panther and Tiger tanks. All too often, the Sherman was reduced to a steel coffin. Belton Cooper was a 25-year-old ordnance officer in the 3rd Armored Division, tasked with recovering and replacing battle-damaged tanks. He witnessed firsthand the deficiencies of the Sherman and even wrote about it in his aptly named book, Death Traps. Cooper first saw the Sherman while training at Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania in 1943. When we got to Sherman's in, in Indiantown Gap, we thought it was a good tank because it had a gun to turret. None of them had ever had a gun to turret before, a big gun. Then we trained with them in England. We thought they were good tanks. and uh, But we never really knew anything about German tanks. We had no information. I never saw any field manuals that told us about the German tanks. I never heard of a Panther tank. I'd read about the Tiger tanks because they'd been in a newspaper. They'd been used in North Africa in the Catherine Pass. But I didn't know anything else about them. I knew about the Russian tanks. We'd read about them. But we had no direct information from the Army, officially, about the German tanks, about their capability, until we got into combat. They had a long barrel 90 millimeter, and fired 3,300-foot second muzzle last time. So here we are, two and a half inches of armor versus three and a half to six inches of armor. 2,000-foot second versus 3,000-foot second. The difference between 2,000-foot second and 3,000-foot second is four million versus nine million foot-pounds of energy. That's an awesome difference. The German tanks could shoot the hell out of us at any angle, any direction, anywhere, ever. The 3rd Armored Division lost six, 560 tanks in combat, totally destroyed. We had another 700 knocked out, which we repaired and put back into action. And that was a total of 33, uh, 1,350 tanks out of 232. That's a loss rate of 580%. Now, I know no branch of the military, the Air Force, the Army, anybody that took anything like that kind of loss. I remember I saw that television program recently where they said the German submarine losses in World War II was 70%. Our losses were 580%. The 3rd Armored Division was divided into three combat commands, A, B, and C. Belton Cooper's unit, Combat Command B, came ashore in France three weeks after D-Day. Their mission was to break out through the dense hedgerow country of Normandy. And first of all, the hedgerows themselves, I, I want to tell you a little about them because they are, they are amazing. The hedgerows in Normandy, uh, we knew nothing about them. We had no training, no previous idea about them, anything at all. And yet, they'd been there for 700 years. Uh, the, these trees would grow in the her and hold the earth and embed themselves in the roots, and the trees would grow. And after 700 years of erosion, the earth moves away and you have this tremendous amount of earth left. It's 10 feet thick at the base and about eight feet high. And it's reinforced with roots and trees and everything. And it's an impenetrable thing. A tank would hit just wrap back on its back and fall over the back and be, 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 be out of commission. You couldn't shoot through with a tank gun. You couldn't shoot through an artillery piece. The only way you could get through a hedgerow was with a bulldozer tank. But we only had four of those in division and we, and we lost them right away. So the Germans could see that big bulldozer, they'd knock it out. So then the only thing we had was a, uh, a shaped charge. I mean, a charge you'd have about 400 pounds of TNT, and man had to crawl up in light to fuse and run like hell and blow a hole in the hedgerow. As soon as they blew a hole in the hedgerow, the Germans would see the first tank and they'd bang it, it would pans of house, they'd knock it out. So that blocked the hedgerow. Pretty soon the Germans got smart, and they let the tanks go through. They, let, they knew that American tanks operated with tunes of five each, so they let four tanks go, they'd block the fifth one, and as soon as it caught in the field, the, the, the Panzer Faust knocked the hell out of the rest of them. So it was a disaster. In Villa's facade, we finally recaptured that little salient. We lost 136 men. We lost 34 tanks. 
and about 10 half tracks and, and, and vehicles. So that was a terrific loss to pay for just a small salient. So that was our first experience in combat. Now, I was not there when that happened, but later when CCB got into combat, then we, that experience helped us a lot. So we realized we could not get to the hedgerows uh, except by these old methods. So a smart young man named Cullen, and I don't know where Cullen was from, but I thought he was in the second army division. I found that he would not. He was in, in one of the engineer units to us. But he was an old country boy. I don't know where he was from. I think somebody said he was probably from Tennessee. But he got the idea of making a hedge chopper. And the idea was very simple and very basic. And I think he got this idea from his father who'd run a, a, a bulldozer back in, in a farm when he, was, when he was a boy. And what he did, he took a piece of steel about three feet long and he took some other steel and cut sharp spikes and let them extend out about two and a half feet in front. So he welded up and put this thing in the toe, and the tank has these towing clevises, you could put it on there, and those, those spikes would dig into the hedge and keep the tank from rearing back. Then earth of the tank would just pull out the whole earth. And a tank, a, a, a Sherman, or even a medium tank or a light tank moving, say, at three miles an hour could take out a hedge run about three seconds. It'd move out about eight or 10 tons of earth. It, it'd never stop, it just, an earth of the tank, it carried through. So that was awesome. Now the hedgerows, the hedge chops were so low to the ground that the Germans couldn't see them. They couldn't see which tanks had and which didn't have them. But once we got the hedge choppers, we could put them on a number of tanks and we could break through 10 or 12 places at once. And the Germans didn't know where the brakes was coming, so that saved the day. That was a tremendous gain. And this fellow, Colin, I don't know what kind of decorate, but he, he used to got the highest medal ever made because he saved thousands of lives and thousands of tanks. And that's how we broke out in Normandy because of that hedge chopper. And then once they broke through the line, then the GHQ tank battalion with the infantry would hold the flanks of the line back. And when the flanks were open and secured on both sides, then the armored division, which was a new unit which had, which, which had not been committed prior to that time, was released to go through that line, and the armored division would go through the line and exploit objectives of the enemy rear. Now, that was the primary purpose of the armored division. And the armored division consists of six tank battalions, three infantry battalions, uh, three armored field artillery battalions, uh, uh, combat engineers, uh, re reconnaissance. Then it had, its all, it, had, it had a supply company, a maintenance company, and a medical company. So it was completely integrated unit, self-contained. An armored division on the move in a major operation, say a three-day operation, would take 300,000 gallons of gasoline for just one operation. So once we got into combat and started moving out, we'd move 30, 40, 50 miles a day. Once a breakthrough was made, it became what you call a breakout. And the enemy resistance, the idea was to attack enemy objectives in the rear. Like if enemy reserves were trying to come up and counterattack, if an armored division could catch them on the road before they could to dig in and form themselves, we could completely slaughter them because the armored division had tremendous firepower. We had about five times the firepower of German infantry division, and it, it made an awesome force. And so the Army Division advanced in six columns, three combat commands, two columns each. And over each column, we had four P-47 fighter planes, 24 hours a day. After the breakthrough at St. Jean, after the breakout at Operation Cobra, the 3rd Army Division came in and went to a town called uh, Cameron. The uh, Second Army Division swung around to the south and, and place called Sessler-Salle, and they blocked the road between Cameron and Sessler-Salle. And between Ronson and Sessler-Salle, there was a German tank column that we caught on the road. And as I say, when we could catch them on the road before they could dig in, we had a big advantage. So they blocked the road from both ends, then they called for the Air Force. And the P-47s came screaming in there, and they brought eight P-47s, and they came screaming in and diving and bombing. They'd, each plane had two 500-pound bombs and eight 50 cal machine guns, and they strafed that column and just devastated it. tore it all to pieces. That went on for about 45 minutes. And we were just waiting up at the top of the hill for them to finish the battle before we could go through there. After about 45 minutes of strafing and bombing, the, the, the crowds would jump out of the tanks and try to run out in the field, and, and, and the armored columns would catch them with a machine gun fire and, and, and slaughter them in the fields. When we got down to that road there, there were German tanks, there were about 50, I'd say between 40 and 50 German tanks, half tracks, all kinds of vehicles scattered down the road. There were German horses pulling out the horses were pitiful. They were shot right in the traces. They couldn't get out of the traces. So there were so many German dead and so many dead horses on that road that we couldn't drive down there. 
we had to get the both of the tanks to go through that and push all the dead bodies off the road before we get through that. It was an abject slaughter. They must have knocked out 50 tanks and probably maybe 200 men and 40, 50 horses. It was awful. That's the worst carnage I saw during the whole war. It was, it was terrible. And so that's the way we did by using a combination of armor, air power, and infantry working together as a team. And if we were going down a road and ran into a German roadblock, we'd stop. We wouldn't try to attack that roadblock head on. We'd stop, bring the artillery up, and they would shell the roadblock, and then our tanks could work around the flank and catch them to one side. That's how we knocked them out. During the Battle of the Bulge, uh, we had a Sherman tank going down the road, and uh, he had a 76-millimeter gun. That was the most powerful gun. That would fire 2,700 feet per second. He was going down the road, and he ran right smack of this panther, and the panther had his gun pointed down in the woods about 90 degrees away. Now, the panther had a hand travis. That was one disadvantage of German tanks. It, it was very slow to turn the turret, particularly if it was down the hill like this. But we had a power turret. We could just turn it like that. So the tank commander realized what he was up against. He knew it was going to take that German time to move that gun around to get on him. So he, he zapped him one time, hit the panther, bounced off. Put in a second shot, it bounced off. The third shot, it bounced off, and by that time he had the gun zeroed in on him, the Sherman Panther. So he told the crew to bail the bail out. It, uh, they hit it one time and it set the tank on fire, just blew it all to hell. They hit it three times, and then they bailed out. He saved his crew. He lost his tank, but he saved it. They all had been dead. But when he couldn't get to that three times, then uh, that was the end of it. The, the, this, this tank commander who was one of the tank commanders in the Third Army Division in the letter that his report back to General Rose who in turn related to Eisenhower in his letter. He said, General, in order for me to knock out a German tank, I've got to get within 600 yards and catch it on the flank. That means the side armor weighs much thinner. Whereas a German tank can knock me out with impunity at head on at a thousand yards. So that was, a, that was the thing. We couldn't even get close enough to him to knock him out before we were knocked out. And that was the in an open field battle like that, it, 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 we just didn't have a chance. As a result of that, we lost thousands and thousands of, of men. That was dev devastated. And so, uh, I just, I just, I just could not believe that there's any chance we we're going to win it. I, I mean, that's the first time I seriously doubted if we could win this war. The Germans were just devastating us. They were just slaughtered right and left, and it just kept going on and on. It just didn't seem to stop. And I thought, what in the hell are we going to do? And so that's what happened the first tanks I saw, and, and then I was really shocked. And I realized that the Sherman tank was woefully inadequate, and I just didn't know how we were going to get through the war. Initially, the Sherman tank crews consisted of five men, but as the losses mounted, the crew size had to be reduced. Now, later on, we began to lose so many men that we had to operate with a three-man crew. We had a driver and a tank commander and a gunner. And the tank commander had to do two things. He had to operate the radio at the same time load the gun because the man had to cross on the other side and load it. And so that was, we finally went with three-man crews. Now, at one part of the book I tell about the time uh, during the Battle of the Bulge. In fact, it was on January the 8th. We were in the counterattack. And we got 17 tanks came down to, the orders would bring, the, the army orders would bring the tanks up to us, to the, to the, to the main battalion. And we were, and the tanks were supposed to be already had ammunition, gasoline, and everything was supposed to be ready to go. So we got the tanks, and we had to do a few touch-ups to get them, get them ready to run, and tune them up, and make sure they're running. Then they brought the crews up there. Well, Major Johnson, who was in charge of the the uh, 33rd Armored Regiment maintenance, he was supposed to get the crews to me. So he sent me up 17 tank drivers, and that's all. And I said, Dick, I said, where in the hell are these other crews? He said, Cooper, you got to get them yourself. We don't have any more crews. I said, you mean that's all you've got? He says, all I've got, these men can actually drive a tank. That means that they, that means they've been in a tank in combat one time, and therefore they're qualified to be a driver, because that's all we had. So then they sent down two truckloads of raw recruit infantry. Now these guys were 17, by that time they were drafted at 17. 17, 18 years old, they brought them down, we lined them all up, said, how many of you guys have ever operated a tank, I mean, none of them have been in a tank, some of them have never seen a tank before, not close up. So we divided them up, 34 men, we took 34 men out because we knew that was going to be, that would make two groups of 17 to, to operate the three, because we knew we couldn't get five men, it wasn't that many men to do it. So we got them out there, so we took them and divided them into crews, and so we took a tank driver and two men, put them in a tank, 
We had good artillery. Fortunately, we had excellent maintenance sergeants and good artillery sergeants. We took those men off the side of the road, and we used armor-piercing shot so it wouldn't explode. We let each man fire three rounds apiece. That's the only training they had on that gun. That's all they had first time. These guys back in the States had fired hundreds of rounds back in the States. They'd been on training for three years, but they were all dead. And so uh, we took them down and trained them, and about 5 o'clock that night we released them, and, and Major Johnson sent up uh, crews to guide them back to the units. They went back to the units and spread out to various companies. Going out about 8 o'clock that night, three hours later, out of that 17 tanks, 15 were knocked out alongside the road. And I don't know whether any of those young guys survived or not. I have no idea. I was devastated. I said, how in the hell are we going to keep going like this when we don't need to have crews? The oldest not only had to repair the tanks, but we had to train the crews because they had stopped training them. I was told that they stopped training tank crews at Fort Knox uh, right at the time of D-Day, but I've been back to Fort Knox twice since then, and they denied that. They said they didn't stop training them. They said they were training tank crews, but they were going to these repl depots. That's a replacement place. And these guys didn't give a damn. If they called them, they, they got, maybe had three months of training at tank school. They sent them an infantry. They sent them wherever they could. They didn't pay any attention to the, to the MOS. That's, a, that's what they call the rating number, what a, what a soldier rated for. I thought, here I was, uh, 26 years old. I'd been in combat for about six, eight months. I'd had some experience. I knew what these guys were getting into. They had no idea what they were getting into. And I thought, how in the hell can you send these kids? But there was nobody else to send. That was it. That's the only place we could get crews from. They had no training at all, and, and I, I don't think those guys had been as, I mean, I think they had to go through basic training. I think there was eight weeks of basic training required to go before you could be sent overseas, but after that they had nothing. And they just, it was terrible. I mean, it's just like putting a, taking a guy off the street and putting him in a, in a boxing match with a 200-pound gorilla. I mean, it was just terrible. It was no, it was no excuse for it. But that's all we had. Belton Cooper's unit had to recover and repair the damaged Shermans. Often, their job included the awful task of removing the dead soldiers from the tank. Had to get the bodies out and that sort of thing, and then we'd go from there. All right, now, this was uh, when we were enveloping the rear pocket. This was in March of 1945. Um, they brought a tank in there. Uh, which was actually shot up, had some bodies inside, and it was a weird, it was it was almost an unnatural thing It happened. And I looked at the tank and it had the gun shot off. That's the first time I ever saw a gun, a tank with the, with the barrel shot off. Sometimes it happened, but it wasn't often. And so we tried to find out what the hell caused that. So the, the two bodies in the tank were just devastated, was torn all to pieces. And so we finally figured out, and this was a rare freak thing, and I described it in the book, and I'm not positive this happened, but it's the best guess I could make. We figured that the 75 millimeter, it was a 76 millimeter gun. It fired at a German tank. At the same time, the German fired at it with a 75 millimeter gun. This is a freak deal. When a tank fires, once the bullet leaves the breech, the tank recoils nine inches, and the breech opens and then it automatically comes back and the breach closed. Was it during this period of time that the German 75 millimeter tank fired and went down that barrel tube and exploded in the barrel? And the breach was open because it hadn't had time to come back in the battery and the blast went inside and killed the crew. And that was one of these freak damn things. That's the only thing I figured. But the barrel was blown completely once the shell exploded. It was a German shell exploding inside that blew the barrel off. And so anyway, those two men were just torn all to pieces. So the Sergeant Fox called for volunteers. And all these great big old rough, tough guys were was always raising hell back in England and carrying over the women and drinking a lot of whiskey and raising hell and big cusses. You would think, hell, those guys have been the first ones to go in and yeah, not, not a damn one of them budged, not one of them moved. And finally, a little, little tall, skinny guy, I think I called him Corporal Smith. I wasn't sure of his name, but he was a T-5, but he was an instrument repairman. He was a tall, delicate guy, real skinny guy. And I had, so he stood, and nobody had said anything, so this guy Smith came forward. He says, Sergeant, I volunteer. So when he volunteered, a couple of these other guys volunteered. Now, two guys had tried before, and they got and they just threw up. They couldn't do it. So he got up there. They got the shelter house out, and they got the bodies out, and they put them in, in separate places. and kept the body parts all together. Then once they got it out, 
they had to get in there with formaldehyde and wash all the inside of the tank out because the guys hitting the head of the brains just exploded. And some lieutenant said, uh, said, Smith, why did you volunteer? You didn't have to do that. You got more important work to do in doing those, those uh, instruments and everything. He said, Lieutenant, he said, you know, he said, I figure every soldier's entitled to Christian burial. You got to get him out of the tank to burial. And he did. And he, that was an extreme act of courage. And I said in that story that courage is, is found in places not always on the battlefield. It took a lot of guts to do that. And that was his thinking. And he was right about it. You got to get him out to bury him. The American Army had also developed a larger, more powerful tank, the M26 Pershing. But unfortunately, it was the Sherman that was initially chosen to be mass-produced for battle. Belton Cooper believes a clear example of how valuable the Pershings could have been was at the Battle of Stolberg in November of 1944. All right, I'll tell you about the Battle of Stolberg. This was a month before the Battle of the Bulge took place. So, we pulled up to Stolberg, we got there in September, and by that time we ran out of ammunition, gasoline, and everything, and they stopped us cold. We were there from September, October, and November, and we finally got gasoline, rations, and ammunition, and we were ready to attack. And we were on the top of a hill, and we were gonna attack down the hill, a downhill slope, which is a kind of a, a nebulous thing anyway. It's, it's, uh, sometimes the people would say downhill is even worse than uphill, but I don't know. I'm not that much of a tank commander to know. But anyway, the tanks got up there, and I would go up on the hill in the daytime. We had captured a German, a German um, a concrete uh, pillbox, and I'd go up there with the observer, and we'd look down the hill, and you could see these cattle down in the field all of a sudden blowing up. And I knew damn well they wasn't blowing up due to gas or something. They'd step on a mine. And so every time a cow would step on a mine, he'd plot it on the map, so he knew that the mines were in that area. So we knew about where the mines were, but the question was, how are we going to get through there? And with two months of rain, two solid months of rain, we not only had to go through a minefield, we had to go through a muddy minefield, and that's worse than a regular minefield. The Germans would actually put the mines behind their own front troops, and normally they don't do that. They only put the mines in front but they put the mines behind their own troops, and of course their mines scattered maybe half a mile deep, they put them in that. But they put some mines in, in right behind their own troops where you couldn't get, you had to go through their, their picket line, so to speak, to, to get to the mines, and so we couldn't get them up at night, and so that defeated us there. Well, anyway, I was up there watching, and he pretty well figured out where that minefield was and plotted on a map and everything and turned it over to the armored troops. So in the morning of the 17th, we were supposed to attack. Now, the Battle of Hurtgen Forest and, and Battle of Hurtgen Forest was a brutal battle. That had just taken place in September and October. In the 4th Infantry, the 28th Division, the 2nd Division, they had lost thousands of men in that forest. It was a devastating battle. And they told us that if we assaulted through that forest again, it would take another 10,000 infantry lives, that many more. Now, we knew also that uh, and I said in the book that a lot of times we had to get away from the, the armored force tactics because we couldn't do it. And normally this would have been a, a job for, for a GHQ tank battalion to make this assault. But a GHQ tank battalion only had uh, three tanks, three, three, uh, uh, three come to 17 tanks each. So we've got a whole combat command and brought them up, had two tank battalions. So we started in the morning of the 17th about, about nine o'clock in the morning. We started first with a tremendous aerial bombardment of about a thousand planes bombing Eswiler, which is the main city back to the rear there to break up the communications. Then we had the tanks firing down in the field. The whole 3rd Armored Division, including the Combat Command B, which was going to make the assault, the tanks were all firing indirect fires artillery. So that gave us equivalent about 30 battalions of field artillery and shelled in this minefield in the area behind it. So then the, the CCB tanks lined up and started in columns, and we had two columns. Of these British flail tanks. Now, the flail tank was a, had a big drum in front and it had these chains and it would swing around like this and hit the mines and try to explode them. So we had the flail tank in front of each column. 
they started up and they started pushing off through the column and through the minefield. The flail tanks hit a few tanks, and uh, they, I mean, they'd, they'd hit a few mines and blow them up. But after a while, the horsepower to drive that flail was so much, it took power from the tracks and the flail tanks got stuck. As soon as the flail tanks got stuck, the Germans knocked them out and set them on fire. So then our tanks would go around the flail tank. Well, the first tank would go along maybe 30, 40 yards and get stuck in the minefield, or maybe hit a mine. And once it got stuck, it stopped the Germans to shoot that tank till it set on fire. And finally, they'll get around back. Eventually, one of the tanks would get through that minefield. Then another tank would try to follow the same tracks. Well, the tracks are so deep, it gets stuck in the minefield. Result of that, we launched that attack with 64 tanks. We lost 48 and 26 minutes in that minefield. It was an absolute abject disaster. We had 64 tanks. We lost 48 and 26 minutes in that minefield. That was a disaster. That was a tremendous loss. There were tanks scattered all over the place, every direction. And some of them were set on fire. Some of the Germans kept shooting. They, they tried to set every tank on fire. They didn't set them all on fire, but they tried to set them on fire. So we had to go out and get those tanks. And so um, in the meantime, the 104th Infantry Division had been attached to us, and they were coming up to make the assault to support the tanks. Well, they came in two waves. The first wave went down forward with the tanks. And actually, uh, out of 19 tanks, I think, in one column of 19 tanks, only five of them got on the objective, but there were three little towns, Worth, Hassan, Rath, and Serpency. There were three little towns down there about a mile apart, a little triangle, and that was where all the road junctions, and that was our objective, to capture those three towns first. Well, they got down there, but the infantry, they didn't have enough infantry to hold on to them, so the tanks tried to do the best they could. So then we went out in that minefield to get those tanks, and... Uh, the engineers had to go out and we had to take these mine sweepers and we had to, because we didn't get our own people blown up, we had to protect them and get them out to the tanks. Then we get these retrievers in there. And a retriever is, a, is an M3 Sherman tank without a, a, a it's got an artificial gun to it. It looks like a tank, but it's, it's, a, it's a bogus gun and it has a, a winch on the back. And it can pull about a 100 pound drawbar over the winch. You put a, we put a, a Pulley on there, you put 200 pounds of draw by pulls. So we get to the tanks and we try to hook up to the tanks. And sometimes the tank, the vacuum in the tank was so hard you had to get a shovel and dig it. We always worried about a mine, and mines could be under that tank. And but eventually we'd get them loose and we got them through bit by bit. But we worked all day long and probably the next day we finally got out. Um, I think we finally recovered all but 13 of those tanks. And we repaired uh, with supplies and replacements we got enough tanks in there to get them going. Within 48 hours, we had the whole combat command up the strength. Now, the tragedy of that was this, that if we'd had the Persian tank, which had a much wider track, and it had a 76 millimeter gun and four inches of armor rather than two and a half inches of armor like we had, we'd have lost some of the Persian tanks, but eventually they'd have gotten to If we'd had the Persian tanks in mass, suppose we'd had 40 or 50 Persian tanks, some of them would have got stuck in that minefield, but the rest of them would have gotten through. We'd have gotten down across the road. We'd have got on the Cologne Plain, and Cologne was only about 15 miles away. We'd attacked Cologne. This was, another, this was a month before the Battle of the Bulge. If we'd attacked and captured Cologne, that was the main hub for the entire Western Front. That was the most, that was the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, supply center for the whole area. That was the actual keynote supply for the entire battle. The three German armies, the, the 6th, the 5th, and the 7th German armies were all down there being supplied. Well, the battle was going to take a month later. That battle didn't start until December 16th. This was a month before. If we'd gotten through the capture alone, the battle of Bulls had never taken place. And I maintain that many of the guys without the water have been over right there. All right, now, uh, I'll go back a little bit to June, uh, January of 1944. In January of 44, we had a meeting in England. General Eisenhower came up from, from North Africa. He brought General Patton, General Bradley, General Hodges, all the Army commanders, the Corps commanders, they had a big meeting in England, a place called Tidworth Downs. And Tidworth Downs was the depot, was the largest ordnance depot in Europe. That's where we kept most of our tanks and half-tracks and artillery. They had so many tanks at Tidworth Downs, you could stand up on a hill, it was kind of rolling country, that's typical English, rolling like this. You see tanks for miles and miles, and all you could see was tanks. Now, Eisenhower wanted to have this meeting because of this problem at Catherine Pass and stuff like that. And he had been told that we now had an operational M26 Persian tank. Instead of weighing 47 tons with two and a half inches of armor in the face plate and a short barrel 75 fire, 2,000 foot seconds, this tank weighed 47 tons, another 10 tons more. It had four inches of armor in the face plate. 
had a wide track about 25 or so inches wide. It had a much longer track so it could span greater hills and it had much more flotation, much, much lower area per pound than, than the Sherman had. It had a long barrel 90 millimeter gun which fired 2,950 foot seconds. That was almost as good as the 88, but not quite. But it's the closest thing we had to it. Now, uh, we didn't get into those tanks till after the Battle of the Bulge was over. And when we got them, we only got 10 of them. Now, going back to this thing in England, Eisenhower uh, had this meeting and the idea was determined what we should do about these, this new Persian tank. Would she stay with the Sherman tank or should we go with the Persian tank? Now, they didn't have any Persian tanks in England at the time, but they had pictures, they had photographs of them. But they've been tested to Armored Force Board at, at Fort Knox, they've been tested at Aberdeen Proving Ground, they've both been passed all their technical tests. And they were in production in the United States, but they weren't high, maybe three or four weeks, something like that. But they were actually in production. Now, at that time, the United States was had this marvelous production system, and I believe, and most people believe, that if, if they'd said, let's go with them, we could probably have had 1,000 by D-Day. But uh, six months later, I mean, the American Army, once they got two of them, got something going, they could turn out tremendous quantities. I mean, it was amazing what they could do. And so, uh, anyway, they had this meeting, and General Rose and General Harmon both served as combat commanders of the 2nd Armored Division in North Africa and in Sicily. And they'd run into these German Tiger tanks at, at, at the Kasserine Pass. They'd run into the Tiger tanks in Sicily at the beach at Gaza. And General Rose, I'm not sure he was at Kasserine Pass, but he was definitely at Gaza when they landed there. And the Germans brought these pants and just shot the hell out of them. So he and Harmon both agreed that we needed the heavy tanks. So when they showed the pictures of the heavy tank, and Eisenhower said, now what should we do? Should we, should we get this tank going or should, should we tell them to get it? Because it's already in production, we can get a quantity, we've got a little time for it. We could get a big bunch before D-Day if we said, let's go. And General Rose and General Harmon were very much for it. They had fought the tanks, they had actually fought it. They said, yes, General, we need that heavy tank by all means. We have nothing to protect ourselves against these heavy pants and, and tiger tanks. And General Patton said, no, Tanks are not supposed to fight tanks, according to the Armored Force Doctrine. Here it was that this Armored Force Doctrine come out again. Patton helped to write that doctrine. He was the ranking officer in the Army that ever served in, a, in, a, in an armored unit. He'd actually fought in tanks in World War I. He spoke more, more, more about tanks than anybody. But Patton had this idea of his own. He was, he just, you, you couldn't, you, you, he just, he was hard-headed. That, he just was opinionated, and that was the way he felt about it. And Rose and Harmon persisted that we should go to the heavy tank because they'd actually fought the tanks. Patton had never fought in a tank in World War II. He'd, he'd been too high up the line. He'd seen a tank battle, but he never actually fought one. And so they said, we need that heavy tank. And Patton said, absolutely not. Said tanks are not supposed to fight tanks. They're supposed to be fast and mobile attack ejectors enemy real. Now what Patton didn't know was the Persian tank had a 550 horsepower motor. It had 16 horsepower per ton whereas the Sherman tank only had a 400 horsepower motor, a lighter tank, but it had about 14 horsepower. So theoretically, the Persian was a faster tank than the Sherman, of course, his horsepower per ton it gives you. We knew it had a wider track, we knew it had a wider barrier, so it had a much a better capability in muddy fields. It had a heavy armor and heavier gun. So everything was plus for the Persian as far as compared to the German Panzer tank, which was the closest thing to it we had. It wasn't quite as good as the Panzer, it was the closest thing we had to it. And so Eisenhower listened to Patton, and he thought, well, Patton has had more experience than anybody. He knows more about anybody. And Eisenhower was a personal friend of Patton. They had a very close personal association. In fact, that's what kept Patton. I kept Patton on the line with all this slapping thing. He, he kept him going because he knew that Patton, he thought Patton was, and Patton was a good general. It was a good thing he did that. That was a smart thing to do because Patton did prove it in his, his, his courageous uh, 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 commander of the Third Army did a fantastic job in, in, once the battle started in Normandy. But he was opinionated about that, and so Patton listened to Eisenhower. And so he said, let's, he, he talked to Washington and said, let's, let's downgrade the Persian, let's don't push that, let's keep the Shermans coming. And that's what happened. And so uh, the assault started that morning, and the first objective was to capture Dur uh, Durin, which was right on the Royal River, that was the objective. And north of the second armed division was captured Ulick. That was the main bastion there. Once we captured these two cities, they were supposed to converge down here and go toward Cologne. Now the second armed really going toward Dortmund. I, the third armed, the, uh, the seventh corps objective was Cologne. So we started across that area, and um, 
we had the tanks spread out. We only had uh, had uh, ten of them, so we had to have five in this combat command and five over here. So we had to spread them out. Every column didn't have a Sherman tank. I mean, a, a Persian tank in it. But Lovelady's column did have a, 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 a Persian tank in it. And in one instant, they were going to tank. I think it's Bladsaw. I'm not exactly sure. It was one of these little towns on the road between the Earth Canal and Cologne. And the Germans brought out two Tiger tanks and a Panther. And our tank was over the flank to one side. And it came down a damn road and knocked out a Tiger tank. It just shot the hell out of it. And I mean, the, 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 the Germans... Uh, didn't have any idea we had a tank that would do something like that. But we was definitely on one side and hit, so they knocked out a Tiger tank there. That's one case I know. Then later on, as I say, in Cologne itself, and city fighting is, is, is very dangerous anyway because, first of all, the thing that you worry about in a city is people throwing stuff off the building on top, like Molotov cocktails and stuff like that, because the arm on top of the deck of a tank is thinner than anywhere else. If you can throw a Molotov cocktail set a tank on fire, that's, that's, that's terrible. You, they tend to bail out. So we worked out a pretty slick tactic on that. We'd have a tank on the right side of the road and would fire in the tops of the buildings in the next block because the crafts were always up on the top floors. When you fire the top floors and set them on fire, they run down the basement. And when they get in the basement, the infantry comes up and throws hand grenades through the basement windows and that racks them up there. And the ones that don't run out the door and get, the rest don't run out the door and then they shoot them or capture them that way. The tank over here would capture the, on the, on the right side over here. So the left side would shoot the builders on the right side and, and the right side would shoot the So you'd, you'd get to where it was fairly safe. By that time, the tanks would come down there with no more people up in the top floors to drop stuff on them. Well, so it's, it's, a, it's a very slow fighting because there's a lot of rubble in the city. Rubble's a good place to have a fortification. So we're going very slowly into Cologne. And so Clarence's tank was uh, was going up the road there. And so he was down there, and he saw this Panther tank knock out this Sherman and kill the crew. It just, it just blew it all to hell. And he saw that. So he had his camera set up, and so he runs around the corner, and he sees this Persian tank. Now, I'm not sure that Bates had ever seen a Persian tank before, but he knew it was a big tank. And this guy, he grabs the crew. I forget the guy's name, the, the head of the crew, but but they have, Clarence can tell you that. He said, there's a damn Panther tank right around the corner. And he said, they've just knocked out this Sherman tank, and I want you to know about it. So he told him exactly where the tank was on the map. So Smoyer said he loaded his gun and put an armor-piercing shot, and he had his, his, his uh, stabilizer engaged. You see, the stabilizer, if the tank could go up and down like it's a stabilizer, keep it on the same level. So that meant American tanks could fire while they were still moving, while the German tanks couldn't do that. They had to stop and fire. So they thought the Americans would do the same thing. Well, Clarence comes around the corner at full speed, and he had that tank going full blast, and he had the turret going the right direction. He came right around. He was aimed right at that, at that Panther tank. Clarence let go with the first round. It struck right at the base of the tank, which is the best good place, the base of the turret. The German armor is thin. It blasted down through the armor and severed the legs of the tank driver. He tried to get out of the tank, but he couldn't. And so then as soon as Clarence stopped the tank, he puts two more rounds, he loaded, loaded two more rounds real quick, and he shot through the fighting compartment of gasoline and set the tank on fire. And I think that two of the men got out, but were captured. The other three were burned up in the tank. That tank burned for two days, two solid days. Here these guys were burning up. Just, I mean, it's just like you're throwing a damn charcoal brawler. They, they were both on fire. You could see them, and they were naked. Their bodies were black and red and horrible looking. And I, I just, I admit, I cried. It just, it just got to me. So, anyway, that night, I got to thinking about that in that foxhole. And I said, how in the hell is this, how in the hell is anybody going to survive this war? Are you going to keep going on? And so then, I started thinking about the 23rd Psalm. And that, and that something happened to me, something very strange. And I remember thinking about this part about walk through the valley of the shadow of death. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, on May 8, 1945, the Germans surrendered. However, the weary American troops feared they would be shipped to the Pacific Theater and continue fighting against the Japanese. Uh, this is one of the most dramatic things that have happened in my life. We had been down to the Riviera. We'd come back, and we had gone to Luxembourg. And there were no railroad bridges across the Rhine River at Cologne. I mean, in the, there were no railroad bridges across the Rhine, period, at that time. There were, there were truck bridges, but no railroad bridges. So you had to go on the train up to, to Luxembourg City, and in Luxembourg City you catch the trucks and go back to Darmstadt or wherever you were in Germany. So we had just come from a two weeks leave. We'd come back up there. We had gone into a bar and gotten a few drinks and had some good meal and everything. So the theater was open. It was just like the Alabama Big Theater, 3,000 palatial 1930-type palace theater. We went in there, and I'd seen the movie. It ran 24 hours a day, and it was called Betty Davis and Dark Victor. I mean, I'd already seen the movie, so I wasn't against it. But I got to sitting there thinking, uh, we've been all through this war in Europe. We've lost all these tanks. We've lost all these men. And now we got to go back to Darmstadt. As soon as we get back there, we got to get ready to go to Marseille. We'll get to, we're going to go to Okinawa and, and invade Japan. And I thought, we've invaded, we've had one war. Oh, is our chance of going to hold out in the next one? And that's what everybody was thinking. So we're sitting in the theater, and every once in a while he would cut the sound off and say, uh, units of the 391st Field Artillery to report down to such and such a street section to get your trucks to go back to Darmstadt. And then about 15 or so minutes they would interrupt. So this time, they don't to cut the sound up to cut the lights on and stop the theater entirely. This, this way they cut the, they stopped the movie entirely. So everybody kind of stood up and scratched their eyes and blinked a little bit and I was standing up and looking around. And all of a sudden, this clear voice of this French, of this uh, uh, Luxembourg theater manager spoke in perfect English. He said, gentlemen, we have just received a BBC broadcast which has interrupted a Tokyo broadcast saying the Japanese have agreed to unconditional surrender. And that was the most traumatic thing that I've ever experienced I've had outside of the war itself. And there were 3,000 young men who had been sitting on death row just like that. They'd been through one war and they finally realized that they were survivors. And I'm telling you, <laughs> I stood up. Some start, some some of them just fainted dead away, just collapsed, just fainted dead away, and so just fell out of the down floor. How they didn't hurt themselves, but they, some of them fell down on their knees and started crying. Some started praying. That's what I did. And I was thankful that at last I'd become a survivor. Bert Close was a 19-year-old Sherman tank crewman. During the war, he was forced to bail out of four destroyed tanks. He first entered combat in July of 1944. The first battle that I was in, about July the 10th, we went through a hole in the hedgerow and uh, the infantry was following behind us, about three or four behind each tank. And then uh, uh, as the tanks would get through the hedge, they would spread out in a platoon of about four or five tanks. And uh, on this occasion, in July 10th, 
the tank in front of us. I guess we probably got through a couple of fields and uh, one of the tank gunners hit a uh, uh, attic in a house that was probably several hundred yards away and just blew the attic to pieces. It could have been a place where a, a, a sharpshooter was or a spotter was uh, giving instructions to German artillery or something. Anyway, we went through these fields and, find, and the tank in front of us, maybe 30 yards in front of us, was hit and started burning. So uh, all the crew got out of that tank and we started backing up. And one of the, uh, I think it was a bow gunner in the tank in front of us that was hit, stood right out there in front of our tank and gave directions with his arms, uh, motioning the driver how to back up into the uh, hole in the hedgerow that we had come through. And then uh, P-47s hit that area where uh, and just maybe 100 yards or 150 yards in front of us. Two or three P-47s came in and strafed and bombed that area and, and uh, blew up what, is there, what was ever there in the way of uh, artillery. And we moved into a village. Well, the, the villages in France, of course, were, the streets were very narrow and the buildings on each side uh, rose maybe two or three stories above our tank. And while infantry was running from door to door, covering each other on each side of the door, on each side of the street, um, we were firing at the end of the street or uh, with um, the 76 cannon, and I was firing machine guns, just didn't see anybody, but uh, just in case there was anybody that wanted to pop out, um, uh, we would keep them uh, down. But uh, there was a place for bazooka men who could have jumped out of a window up above us and, uh, and hit us with the bazooka and there would have been no way in the world that we could have uh, stopped that. So in a sense, uh, every time we got into a tank, um, Knowing what we'd already been through, we, we knew that it was, in a sense, a suicide mission. But nevertheless, uh, I think each of us felt that uh, we were rather invincible and, and uh, wouldn't be hurt or killed. And that's what kept us going. I think if we felt otherwise, we would never been able to get into a tank and fight. For several months, Close served on the crew of the greatest tank ace of World War II, Staff Sergeant Lafayette Poole. Poole is credited with destroying over 250 enemy vehicles. Uh, Lafayette Poole, when I joined the crew, is, was just, uh, just another tank commander, another tank staff, uh, staff, staff sergeant and platoon sergeant. Um, and he had... Uh, been in 3rd Armored Division and I Company of the 32nd Regiment for probably two and a half years. Trained in Mojave Desert and in Indian Town Gap, uh, Pennsylvania and Camp Pickett, Virginia. And that crew had all been together and, and uh, but nobody, you know, uh, was in awe of anybody else at that time. They all knew each other very well. and. Uh, they knew their families to some extent. So uh, Poole was just like every other tank commander and every staff sergeant when uh, the first battle started. I didn't even know Poole or the crew when I joined them on the, about the first or second of July after the first battle. And he was, he was uh, smart and he was quick. He was uh, uh, Golden Gloves boxer, and uh, I'm told that he even fought a, uh, a uh, exhibition round in England with Joe Lewis. Uh, but he, so he he wasn't uh, afraid of anybody, uh, but nevertheless he wasn't cocky. He didn't. Uh, I was a buck private, and, and the others were all privates or or uh, 
corporals. He was a staff sergeant, but he never pulled rank. He, everybody knew what they were supposed to do, and they did it, and they worked together very well. Um, so he, what, <coughs> he wasn't a macho type at all. And we used to kid him, and sometimes we'd call him Lafayette, we are here, uh, like uh, I guess the World War I veterans or soldiers did to the French mm -hmm. soldier. And we would kid him, and uh, of course he always, he was always willing to take a joke. And um, nobody took anybody seriously, really, uh, except when we were in the tanks and going down the road. And then, then things got pretty tense. The uh, first time uh, I was with Poole, uh, in his, uh, this was his second tank. It was my first tank in the mood. Uh, it was a new tank. It had replaced the first tank that had been destroyed. And this was a, uh, what I thought was a new tank at least. It, it had new white enamel paint all, all inside. And uh, smelled good and looked good. And it had a 76 gun and I thought this was really a great tank. As we were about to start into action and we were right on the, uh, the verge of, well, I, we were probably within range of every German gun that was sitting out there, but nevertheless there was no action occurring at that time. And uh, I had been moved up from bow gunner to the loader's position and the loader's position was empty. We, going through the uh, the Dragon German uh, Siegfried line and the Dragon Teeth, uh, I company, like every other tank company, lost a, a lot of men and a lot of tanks. And so we were shorthanded. Well, uh, just before we were to move out, uh, a jeep comes up beside our tank and a young soldier jumps out and uh, he's told that he's going to be the loader of In the Mood and I'm to go down into the bow gunner seat again position. So that's what we happened, what happened. Um, I don't know how long it was after that before we really started out. It might have been 10 minutes, 15 minutes uh, before we moved out. Well, we uh, we moved out, started started going forward, along with all the other tanks, I assume. And a German shell uh, hit our tank. Um, it uh, probably was a it, w it was a armor-piercing shell, and would have probably probably went all the way th one through one side and out the other. And it hit. Uh, Aller in the foot, and it hit uh, Poole in the leg. He would be standing behind Aller. And I don't know at that time whether that, that was a shell that uh, also killed this soldier that had come in and replaced me in the loader's position. Uh, but I heard scrambling, and, and Poole and Aller got out of the tank. Well, Richards uh, thought the best thing we can do is try and back out of, out of range. And uh, so he, he put the tank in reverse to uh, see if we could get it out of range of this cannon that hit us. And uh, we probably went back 30 feet or so and we were hit again with another shell about in the same place. And if that, if the first uh, shell hadn't killed uh, the uh, loader, the second one did. And then uh, we went a few feet back further and we didn't know where we were going because we, we had nobody to guide us and we couldn't see. We were no, no way to look around, no rear view mirrors. And the tank uh, backed into a, a, apparently a, a, a large crater and uh, lurched and turned over on its, uh, on its side and almost three quarters over and um, upside down. 
And we pulled, uh, uh, Richards and I pulled uh, the loader out of the hatch, but he was, uh, he was dead by the time we got him out onto the ground. Um, and then German artillery started coming in, and I crawled back under the tank probably for 40 minutes or so. And then uh, after it got uh, stopped to some extent, I made a run for it back to uh, see if I could get out of range, and I'm sure Richards did the same. We got back to a forward command post, and all I remember uh, about that was that some officer was telling to uh, two men who I assume were uh, war correspondents that sorry that they, he didn't really have anything much to show him up there. And I thought to myself, boy, if you wanted to come with me, I could sure give you a story. And, and later on, we, we uh, looked at the tank to see what had happened, and this pro projectile had hit the uh, 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 mount, a uh, gun mount uh, that, that held the cannon in place when it was going down the road, but which was flat against the face of the tank at this time. And it had hit that and been deflected and cut a uh, uh, gouge over the driver's hatch and sealed the driver's hatch and then cut a gouge through the uh, outside uh, turret uh, by the loader. And uh, we discovered that after we were able to get out and look at the tank. So when uh, we had a chance to look at the tank and we saw what had da the damage that had been done on the outside, but the damage on the inside, all of the new white enamel paint had either been uh, shaken loose or peeled loose from that explosion. Uh, so when you, when you consider an explosion that would knock the paint off the inside of a tank, uh, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good explosion. And I happened to be down on my knees uh, looking for uh, 76 millimeter ammunition. I thought it was a good time to start praying, but uh, we got out of that all right. The second uh, uh, tank was in, the was in the mood, and that was hit uh, with the two armor-piercing shells, and and there, it really wasn't much of an explosion, uh, and very little fragments uh, that went uh, when those shells hit the tank. I uh, had a piece of uh, just a tiny piece of shrapnel hit my lip. I guess my lip was bleeding when I finally got out of the tank. They they must have hit the turret because that's the shells that. Uh, Killed it, killed the uh, loader, and then hit pool. But those shells must have gone through the outs uh, out the other side of the turret also, because they didn't they didn't bounce around inside the turret. I don't know what hit us really, whether it was a high explosive or a, a armor piercing, but it was uh, it was concussion burns. Rather than uh, rather than shrapnel, it uh, hit my face um, and burned my face with uh, concussion burns, and I'm sure that that's what uh, caused the, the driver's blindness. Um, so uh, my left cheek and chin and left side of my forehead was uh, pretty raw, and. Uh, so I was sent back to the hospital after getting, uh, getting Starblaze to the uh, first aid station. Um, and I was uh, taken care of there for about 10 days or so and uh, sent back to the company, returned to the company, and I was looking forward to getting there because I was waiting for my mail. But by then, the temperatures were down into the below zero, and I've read that they got down as low as 18 degrees below zero. And that was pretty, that was pretty cold on that raw face, I can tell you. Uh, 
at that same time, as I was going back to the replacement depot, uh, after getting out of the hospital, I met two old I Company men who had been badly burned in uh, the first day's battle on June 29th, badly burned. And they were in a hospital, I guess, in England. Um, and this was, they were being returned to the company uh, about the 10th of January. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe that they would be sent back after the injuries that they had suffered. And uh, on our first day's outing again, when I was in the company commander's tank, they were sent and put in another tank as driver and assistant driver, and they were both killed. Close had learned the deficiencies of the Sherman tank the hard way. My feeling towards the Sherman tanks by the time, uh, by January of 1945, was uh, pretty much a feeling of disgust and it gone from being a, uh, something I, th I really thought was a great tank until it was uh, just a piece of junk, really. I think the problem was that uh, the Sherman tanks, as I have since read, were designed really to fight uh, ground troops, not uh, uh, empla German emplacements or German tanks. But and my, my feeling was that there was no reason to uh, use Sherman tanks in the hedgerows when uh, they could be destroyed by bazookas at a range of 25 yards. I think the Sherman tank uh, it was inferior in both armor and firepower because, uh, but I think also the tactics that the, uh, were used, uh, the strategy of sending tanks up roads one behind the other uh, and trucks and half-tracks one behind the other on an icy road where there was no maneuverability was, was terrible. Uh, it just seems to me that there must have been another way to have fought that battle. Um, and I totally lost confidence in whoever was making the decisions. And I told the company uh, first sergeant that uh, I was, you know, totally disgusted both with the Sherman tank and with the people who were making the decisions on how to use it. And that, and as I reflected back on uh, the the second and third and fourth tanks that we lost, those tanks never really fired a telling shot before they were knocked out. Uh, one way or the other, they were just sitting ducks and never, they were never uh, used to any potential. Um, and, and I have to think that uh, it was the people in command that really weren't using those tanks the way they should have been. The key to ultimate success in World War II was improved tactics and technology, and the sheer manpower, mass production, and determination of the United States and the Allies. There was always replacements. Although they were not trained to fight in tanks, they were there to be able to, they were there to drive them, and, and through sheer uh, numbers, uh, they were able to uh, uh, beat the Germans. Um, and, and the same, of course, I'm sure with the, the armored infantry and the infantry in general. They, um, when, they, when they needed replacements, they found them. When I, 
when I was going back to, from the replacement depot in January to my company, I met a, a, a large group of uh, men who had uh, been taken out of the Army Specialized Training Program at, uh, in, in the States. They were the fellows who were going to go to college and uh, become specialized in certain programs and never expected to see any combat. And uh, I met them in the depot. They all had their brand new Garand rifles and new uniforms and they were about ready to go up to the front. So it was just sheer numbers. Uh, and the Air Force, I think, did a terrific job. Uh, they, they saved an awful lot of tanks and tankers uh, by strafing and bombing at various points. P-47s particularly. We got bombed out by a P-38 once. Uh, but uh, P-47s did a tremendous job and it's, uh, I, I think that they must have contributed greatly to the ability of the tanks to go down these roads safely and, and make the, the miles that they did laterally. It was the end of active combat for Bert Close, but thousands of young men would follow him. And along with his contributions, they would eventually win the war. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.